Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you all and to worship with you, to be with you here uh, this morning. I would like to invite you to turn your Bibles to uh, the book of Philippians. This morning we will continue our study through the book of Philippians by looking at uh, chapter 4. Chapter 4, uh, verses 2 and 3. Philippians chapter 4, beginning, we'd like to begin the reading in verse 1, but we'll focus our attention on verses 2 and 3, and like, I would like to read through, uh, well, just through verse, verse 3. So Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, before we hear God's word, if you would, uh, join your hearts together with me in prayer. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we thank you for your exhaustless grace and your never-ending mercy to us. And so we place praise upon you, or praise to you upon our lips, and we continually sing of your mercy, and we thank you, O God, for the righteousness of Christ that's been imputed to us, that we have been clothed with the pure vestments of his perfection. Father, we thank you for your word, we thank you for the gospel, we do pray, Father, that as the gospel is proclaimed and heard, that you would cause us by your spirit to love you more and more, and to love others as ourselves, for we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Beloved, this is the word of God. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Udia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our Lord remains forever. In verses 2 through 9, so this section all the way through 9, we have some concluding exhortations uh, from Paul. We didn't read the whole section here, but that is what we have beginning in verse 2 and all the way through verse 9. Verses 2 through 3, which we'll look at today, addresses two women in the church. In verses 4 through 7, Paul says, Rejoice to the church, and he says, Do not be anxious, but pray. Then in verses 8 and 9, he says, Think about whatever is excellent and practice what they had seen in him. So we have some. Uh, exhortations that come right after one another in this section, and we'll look, look at them in turn. Verse 2 makes it clear here that there were two women in the church involved in a disagreement with one another. Now, this disagreement wasn't necessarily, or it wasn't merely private. This wasn't a private thing between these two women. The disagreement was threatening, it seems to be threatening the unity and the health of the whole body. And so the disagreement was known. It was a serious enough of a disagreement to the apostle that he decided to directly address these two women here. That's just how serious the apostle thought it was. And we would do well to remember here what Paul had said in verse 1 of this chapter. He said, Stand firm in the Lord. Meaning, 
Stand firm as one body. Stand firm in the Lord means we must stand firm in the one body of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are to be united in heart and thought, united in love. To put it another way, it's impossible to stand firm in the Lord while remaining divided. And so we have to remember verse 1, stand firm in the Lord. Now, here's a particular example how two, at least two individuals might do that. We stand firm together, friends, or we don't stand at all. The first thing we should understand here is that Udia and Syntyche were not immature Christians. They were not immature Christians or foolish problem makers in the church. We shouldn't view them this way. It is implicit here that these two women must have been prominent female leaders in the church at Philippi. If it were two lesser-known people or two people who were known for their immaturity, known for their foolishness, Paul likely would not have addressed that problem in this way. He, he likely would have left the matter to the leadership of the elders at, in this church there. Or he just would have addressed the whole church generally so that possibly these problem makers would fall into line. This is essentially what Paul did with the sexually immoral man in Corinth who had taken his father's wife. He said in his letter to Corinth, let him who has done this be removed from among you. And so he leaves it essentially to the local leaders there to deal with that problem. He doesn't address that man, for example. He doesn't address him by name. And so these women weren't problem makers. They weren't foolish. They were leaders. These women must have led led and had a strong influence in the life of the church. Remember what Paul had just said. He said, imitate me and keep your eyes on those whose lives replicate the kind of life that you see in myself and in men like Timothy. There are people who follow men like them, imitate them. Live like them. And so keep your eyes on Christians who live like that. If these women lived these kinds of lives, lives like Paul lived, lives like Timothy lived, replicating the loving and self-denying lives of these men, if these women were in the church as examples to follow, then if they, these two, if they stayed divided, if they stayed in disagreement with one another, it was very likely that the others who look to them for an example, it's very likely that they would follow in line with what they're doing, that they would become disagreeable, that they would stay in disagreement with others as well. And so you can see the trickle effect that might happen from these two prominent women who must have been examples to follow. No, Paul saying we need examples of Christ-like unity in the church. That is what Paul was saying here. That is what we need in the church. This current division between prominent sisters is not good. We need good examples. And we need our good examples to remain good examples. These two women were, it appears to be, they were not doing that. They were not doing this. Or at least they were not doing this um, in in the best way possible. Paul makes it clear, though, that these were prominent female leaders. He describes them as, uh, he describes them as women, in verse 3, who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together. 
They are fellow workers. Verse 3 again. Their service in the church was known. They were well known. Their sacrifice, their work in the church was felt. It was known. They had established themselves through that self-sacrifice as leaders in the church. So much so that Paul could say, they're fellow workers with me. They're fellow co-workers with me in the gospel. Now the phrase... Uh, labored side by side that Paul uses here is an English translation of one Greek word. The word carries with it the connotation of gladiators contending in the ring. That is what happened in the days of, of the Roman Empire. In Paul's day, they would many people would flock to the Colosseum to see gladiators uh, fight each other in the ring. We might also think of the way in which athletes suffer and fight together for a common goal. They're teammates on the same team and they fight and struggle on, on the battlefield, as it were, for a common goal. In fact, part of the Greek word that is used here is where we get our English word, athlete. So Paul affirms the quality of these women, the worth of these women. These are fellow teammates of mine. These are fellow gladiators in the ring with me who have labored side by side with me in the arena to bring the gospel uh, to bear upon the world. Now notice that Paul notice that Paul does not assert his male authority over them here. He doesn't treat these women as inferiors. This is definitely this what Paul does here is definitely not a domineering, super-patriarchal attitude from Paul. Some Christian leaders today, in their writings and their preaching, would want to see this take place in the church. they very open and clear about this. They would set forth this type of attitude in the church today. Now, Paul considers these women as equal with himself. Not in the least bit. Does he give any hint that he would claim that they were inferior in any way? These women labored side by side with me in the gospel. We are equal in that way. They're worthy of my time. They're worthy of your time, church, to pray for them, to see them be unified. You see what Paul does there. He lifts them up. He doesn't tear them down. He even names another man here together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers. These are women, Clement, myself, we're all side by side fellow workers in the gospel. In the apostles' mind, in the body of Christ, every contribution from every member of the body matters. That is how Paul saw it. That is how we should see it as well. Nothing that you contribute to in the church, nothing that you do, in the church, doesn't matter. It all matters. We all need one another. And so that is the way Paul presents it here. These women matter. Their work matters. This disagreement matters. Especially, so everything that we do in the church matters, especially the contribution or lack of contribution from those, both men and women, whom God has placed in the church and in homes to be leaders. He has a special standard for them, and this is what we see here from Paul. These women are leaders. They set an example. They're in a disagreement. This disagreement needs to end. Now, with this said, this is the same Paul. He, he treats these women as, as equals, although they're in disagreement. He wants that disagreement to end. He, 
He treats them as equals with himself. Now, with this said, this is the same Paul who wrote Timothy. He wrote the let to two letters to Timothy, and he told Timothy very clearly in those letters, and in Titus as well, that women cannot hold office in the church. He made that very clear. Women should not be pastors, they should not be elders or deacons in the church. This is from Holy Scripture. And so for the sake of proper order, distinctions are made. They're not made based upon quality or an inferiority or lack of gifts necessarily. They're made for order. There's distinctions to be made. God has given us certain abilities to do certain things and they're best applied in certain areas. And so for the sake of proper order in the church, distinctions are made. Just like a husband or and father is a distinctly male role in the family, so too being a pastor, elder, or deacon are distinctly male roles in the church. It provides good order. Now, Paul would not have allowed either Udia or Syntyche to become elders or apostles. And so as much as he praises them, if they ever desired to do that, we know from the rest of Scripture that he would simply tell them No. That's not the way the church is ordered. But he also would never consider the service of these women, the service that they offered on behalf of the gospel, he would never consider their service as less significant than his own work as an apostle. They are fellow workers, fellow gladiators with me in the church. We make distinctions, yes, for the sake of order, Because this is what we've been given in the word. And this is how we're made as men and women. But we don't make distinctions in terms of significance. In terms of how we view one another. We are fellow, all, each one of us fellow gladiators in the arena of the gospel. We are not told exactly what it was these women did. It could have been administrative work in the church. It could have been hospitality. They could have been involved in financial giving or financial management in some level. They could have been strong prayer warriors, leaders in prayer or leaders in encouragement in the church. They might have had led ministries to other women in the church. They might have been involved in property management or teaching children. We're not told exactly what they did that brought them to this level. It could have been a combination of all of these things. Whatever it was, though, it was apparent that through their loving self-sacrifice and their hard work for the gospel, Paul says, they worked with me in the gospel. Through that sacrifice, they had established themselves as leaders in Philippi. They were honored. They were well-known, recognized as leaders in the church, examples to follow. So much so that Paul commends them publicly as fellow workers and fellow uh, contenders in the gospel. Now, this is... It's kind of funny if you think about it. On the one hand, Paul is publicly endorsing them and approving of their self-sacrifice and their worth. On the other hand, he's slightly rebuking them for being in a disagreement. Um, But both are true. Paul does affirm their worth in this section. And so it it was important that these two women figure out how to come to an agreement. Now, friends, This is an important thing for all of us to remember, especially those who are in official leadership in the church. Uh, We might also think about leadership in the family, husbands and wives. 
and other leaders in the church community. They're not just, just ordained leaders in the church. There are other leaders in the church that lead in some type of fashion. There are times when we may disagree. That will happen. There are times when, when the, that happens, there are times when someone, one of those parties, must concede. One of us must concede defeat. One of us must swallow his or her pride and let the thing go for the, sa- for the sake of unity. Literally, Paul tells these women to have the same mind. Think the same. Have the same mind. Agree in the Lord. How is that done? Well, on some level, someone, one person or both, whoever it is, they've got to give up. They've got to let it go. They've got to lower themselves. They've got to consider the needs of the other person as more significant than their own. If you are a Christian, if you want to be considered someone who sets a good example for others to follow then you will need to get really comfortable, friends. You will need to get really comfortable with not getting your way all the time. You will need to get really comfortable with admitting wrong, admitting being wrong, even if perhaps on the rare chance you're right. And for husbands listening today, you're never right. We should all get comfortable with being wrong, losing, losing the battle. Let it go. Pick your battles. We've been given a mind to think about these things. We have the mind of Christ. Be wise. Not everything has to be fought to the death. Apparently, that's what was happening between Udia and Syntyche. They were just not letting it go. I'm often, as we look at these things, I'm often confused by Christian leaders today who, again, promote this extreme patriarchy in home and the church. And how do, they, how do they define this patriarchy they want to espouse? Well, they define it narrowly as basically the husband gets the last word. That's how, that's usually the essence of their definition. And then the pastor gets the last word. That's... That's what it means to be a man. That's what it means to have authority in the church. You get to say the last word and you get to have the yes or the no at the end of the day. Now, in worst cases, now this might work on some level, and and we'll talk about this in a second, but in worst cases where this is put forth, true love is missing in that situation. Male leadership then becomes tyrannical. That's what can happen when you're dealing with teaching like that. We don't see that from Paul. Now certainly, we as men in, in the home and in the church, we should, we should be willing to take up the mantle of responsibility. We should act and work like men. We're men, after all. We should think deeply about decisions we make, the serious decisions and others, the ones that we make with our wives and with others. We should think deeply about them, the ones that we make with other leaders in the church. We should not ignore them or pretend that we have no responsibility there. That's... That's going in the other direction. We need to think about these things. But we are not called to lord whatever authority we may have over others. We are not called to that. That is very clear. In fact, Jesus says, if you want to be first, you are to be last. And so the domineering attitude, the domineering teaching that is out there is actually antithetical to what the gospel has us be and to do. 
That's to be last, willing to be last in a disagreement. I'll be last this time. I'll be last the next time. I'm okay with that. That's how you stay agree in agreement in the Lord on some level. This means that true Christ-like leaders, male and female, will be very comfortable with concessions, humbling yourself over and over again in order to agree in the Lord. Now, some battles, friends, yes, they are worth fighting for. There are others that are not. We need to be comfortable losing those battles that are not worth fighting for. Now, why, why do I bring these things up? Because this is essentially what Paul does here. Paul is a man and an apostle. As an apostle and a pastor, his job was to minister the gospel, was to preach and to pray. His job was to shepherd the flock. Part of shepherding the flock required that he address sin in the church and serious problems in the church. This was one of them. Now, it's likely that Paul would have preferred not to have to deal with this. As he's writing this letter, he, I'm guessing, probably would have preferred that this problem could just solve itself on its own. But he knew about it. He knew it could potentially cause other problems, and so he addresses it here. But notice how he does this. He doesn't step in with male dominance or an authoritarian attitude. He first introduces this exhortation with what? With a heap of endearing words. He says, my brothers and sisters whom I love, verse 1, who I long for, my joy and crown, my beloved. This is how he regarded Udia and Syntyche. He loved them. They were his joy and his crown. These ladies were his joy and crown. He cared for them deeply. To have to do what he was about to do in addressing them was not easy. He also follows up this exhortation to agree with more encouraging words. These are women who labored side by side with me, fellow workers, names whose, who, whose names are written in the book of life. And so he begins with loving words, he addresses the problem, and then he, he ends with loving words. That's not domineering, is it? It's not in my mind. That's, that's how I want to be addressed if I need to be corrected. These are part of the elect children of God, and this is how Paul addresses them. These are women who deserve to be honored and encouraged. And so Paul goes about addressing this problem with these women, I think, in a very different way than even some Christian leaders um, might think should be done. Next, Paul addresses each of them directly. He, He uses both of their names and he adds the exhortation, I entreat you to each address. I, adjure, I urge Udia and I urge Syntyche. Agree. Now what that did was show that, these highly, that he highly valued them as individuals. He addressed them personally, individually, by name. And so he took the time to do that. They are sisters in the Lord. And also, he shows here by doing this that he wasn't taking a side necessarily. He didn't say in this letter or seem to indicate that one was wrong and the other was right. These are not unwise women. The disagreement must have been over something fairly substantial. Everyone knew that there was a stalemate between them over something, but Paul doesn't imply here that one is right and one is wrong. He does, however, bring to light the danger of their ongoing feud. They are at an impasse, obviously. If they remain there, there is potential for that to trickle into the rest of the relationships in the church. Now, Paul certainly urges these women. He pleads with them. I entreat each of you to agree to find some way through this 
blockade that you've set between yourselves and find unity. But Udia and Syntyche were still free. The way Paul does this, they were still free to continue on in their stalemate. Now, they would have suffered for this. The church would have suffered. But Paul leaves it at the end of the day up to them, at the end of this letter, to do what needs to be done. Again, he's not domineering. He's not authoritarian. He brings the seriousness to light, and he honors their position, both of them, uh, together to make the right decision. They would suffer the consequences if this disunity remained because they would see the kind of further disunity in others that their own hard-heartedness might cause. Because Paul loved the church, he did not want to see this happen, and so he brings this into the light. I think then, friends, what we have here in these verses, in this situation, is a proper, loving exercise of pastoral authority on the part of Paul the Apostle. This is an example that each one of us can follow in terms of how we address one another, how we address conflicts, perhaps, how we deal with disagreements with one another. Finally, the other thing that he does here is he directly addresses another person, a third party, to help these women come to agreement. He says, I ask you also, my true companion, help these women. There's no way for sure to tell who this person was. Some uh, interpreters think that this word that's translated true companion is actually a proper noun. It was actually the name of the person because it looks very close to the, the word that's used for companion. Uh, the only example I could think of in English for us today is the name Buddy. Uh, some men are named Buddy, and if you wrote a letter and you say, Hey, Buddy, help, you know, help these people out, it might be just anyone, or it might be actually the man named Buddy. Uh, There's no way to tell exactly who this person uh, was, but it is certain that the Philippians knew who this person was and that the person who heard this letter knew who he was. And so uh, it was the way in which Paul addresses him, they knew what needed to be done. For our sake, though, it's good to point out here that Paul wasn't shy to bring in another party. He wasn't shy to bring in a mediator, a counselor, between these two women to help them reach unity. Now, sometimes we do need extra help, and that's okay. Sometimes we do need extra help to help us get to a point where we can agree, perhaps a pastor, an elder, a counselor, a friend, someone to come along and give us a third perspective other than the one that we're stuck in between each other. Sometimes husbands and wives can become so blinded by their own perspectives, and this happens, that they need a counselor, a third party, to come in and help them. Paul shows us here that is perfectly okay. We should be comfortable with that at times if we need extra help. Sometimes we need help to see things the way they truly are rather than seeing things the way I see them, which is usually I'm right and everyone else around me is wrong. And so sometimes we need that extra help. Now think about this, friends, in terms of the family. We have to ask the question, you know, is it, is it good for the children in the family to see their parents in a standoff with one another? Is it good for the children to see neither husband nor wife backing down, not willing to humble themselves to each other? It's, it's not good. Now, of course, when we're asking these things, and this would apply to leaders in the church and other leaders and ordained leaders and non-ordained leaders in the church as well, it's not good for people to 
see others in a stalemate with one another when we are Christians. Now, of course, we want to set aside the the experience of of serious abuse and neglect or abandonment. That certainly does happen. We're not talking about that necessarily, but there are times when we can come to an agreement. It's not good for others to see Christians remain at an impasse with one another. And so uh, Paul addressed the Philippians in this way. It was not good for them to see Udia and Syntyche squared off with each other and not budging. I said finally already, but this is the real finally. Lastly, Paul ingeniously inserts this glorious reminder about every Christian. Udia and Syntyche's names, Clement's name, Paul's name, the names of all believers, my name, your name, they're all written in the book of life. Now this book is referred to in Revelation as the book of the life of the Lamb that was slain. And we're told in Revelation that the names written in that book were written in that book before the foundation of the world. Your name was there before you ever came into existence. Before you ever rebelled against God, before you ever sinned against Christ, rejected his gospel, before that ever happened, your name was in his book. Before you even had the opportunity to disagree with that other Christian in your family, in the church, your name was written in this book. All of our names are written there. Before we did everything in our power to rebel against God, he chose us. He elected us for salvation, and he sent his son to accomplish that salvation. This book is a reference then to election. Your eternal election in Christ before the foundation of the world. Your name is not in this book because you agreed to have your name written there. Because you agreed to believe in Christ and then subsequently decide that, yes, it's okay if I have my name written there. Your name is written there and you are a believer in Jesus Christ because God wrote your name there before you were born. God freely wrote our names there and he saved us in Christ. This mention of the book reminds us of this. Udia's name is there, Syntica's name, your name, my name. All the names of believers are all there. Now think about this in terms of agreeing with one another. If before we were born, before the world existed, our names were written in this book and so we were destined to be saved because of God's grace, If our names were there in this book, and so we were destined to be saved, and if Jesus the Lamb came to this world and was slain to accomplish our salvation, even though we deserve something far worse, and if because of what Jesus has done for us, sealing our names in his blood, if all this is true, so that we might have eternal life, this is the book of life after all, our names are there And we will obtain eternal life because our names are there. If all of this is true, should we not then today find some way to agree in the Lord? I think that's what Paul is getting at here. If you think about the fact that your name is written in that book, not because of anything you have done or anything in you, but because of God's grace ultimately, 
Do you have any rights to cling to in your disagreements that you can't possibly let go of? You don't. And that's the message that Paul is bringing to the church here. Udia, Syntyche. Your names are in the book of life. You will obtain eternal life when this is all over. Find a way to agree in the Lord. And so, brothers and sisters, beloved in Christ, fellow soldiers in the gospel, fellow workers whose names are written in the book of life, I, in the book of life, I entreat you, agree in the Lord. Let's pray together, friends.